electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Hi, I'm Brian Sullivan, and tonight, a seismic shift in energy? Maybe Exxon could be ready to make one of its biggest deals ever. It's working. The UAW now may have the upper hand over the big three. Turning up the heat, prosecutors giving a major announcement in the trial of Sam Bankman-Fried. It's about to be a whole lot easier to get an EV tax credit, but could abuse be hot on its trail? Enough already. Yet another wave of streaming price hikes are coming for you. When will this stop? And week five, the NFL already upon us. Will your esteemed and beloved host beat the books this week? I'll give you three picks, and you tell me where I'm wrong. All that and much more across this Friday hour. So belly up or buckle up. Last call is up right now. All right, good evening here. Good afternoon out west. I am Brian Sullivan. Thanks for joining, especially to all of our fans at Joe Stonecrab in D.C. You know who you are. All right, we're going to get to all those stories shortly, but first up, an absolutely wild roller coaster ride for your money today. It's all thanks to the jobs number that left a lot of jaws dropping across Wall Street. Red hot hiring in September triggering fears of additional rate hikes for the Fed. In other words, good news, maybe bad news. Treasury yields soared. And then stocks dove at first, but then the tide completely changed. Those yields pulled back from the earlier spike, and that set stocks surging. Take a look at that intraday action. With the reversal, the NASDAQ and the S&P kind of remarkably closed up on the week. The S&P 500 breaking a four-week streak of losses. Only the Dow finished slightly in the red for the week. But the blowout jobs number also generating some more questions than answered. First and foremost... How did economists get this so wrong? 336,000 jobs were created versus expectations of 170,000. In fact, the highest estimate on the street was for just 250,000 jobs, not 250% jobs. All right. And if the huge miss was not odd enough, the Labor Department also gave big revisions higher to the totals from both July and August. Why do you care? Well, because before today, the Labor Department was on a record downward revision run to the monthly numbers. In fact, through the first half of the year, every single monthly jobs number ended up being revised down for a total of about 325,000 fewer jobs. But even though the messy jobs report seems bullish, listen to this. American bankruptcies are soaring up by 61% year over year. Small business bankruptcies up 41%. Higher borrowing costs and maybe slowing consumers in parts of America hitting some of these companies. So it all begs the question, how are we really doing and what exactly happened today? Joining us now to try to make sense of it all are StoneX Chief Market Strategist Catherine Rooney-Vera and Chief Strategist at Solus Alternative Asset Management, Dan Greenhouse. Dan... 
Somebody somewhere changed their mind in a big way about 11 a.m. today. What changed? Yeah, I mean, listen, the, the first thing to point out is, is somewhat obvious for a lot of us that, that trade in the markets every day. And that's that the initial reaction to numbers like this are almost always skewed by algorithmic trading, what we call the algos. And I, I wouldn't read too much into that to that action. But, but to your point, there was something of a midday reversal. And I think my read on it is a little differentiated in the sense that I think this is not too out of step with what the Fed is telling us. And what I mean by that is the Fed has effectively told the market that we are not going to get inflation down to our target until 2026. And that's not because we can't. It's because we're choosing not to. We're not willing to do the types of things through rate, rate hikes that would bring inflation to target sooner. So what you're left with if you're a market participant is an economy that continues to do quite well, earnings growth that is increasingly look like it's going to be meaningfully positive for the next couple of quarters. And so when you get a jobs report of 300 plus thousand, mm -hmm. I'm not sure what you're supposed to do with that other than buy stocks. You know, Catherine, you could make a very smart argument that this jobs number, despite that huge headline, was actually not that great. Travel and leisure, most of the jobs. Government, number two, a record number of Americans holding multiple jobs. The household survey, which is, there's two surveys inside here, was actually sort of weak-ish, and unemployment actually ticked up. I wonder if that's kind of what the market was sensing and flipped. And if not, then what do you think it was? Well, I'll add one data point to what you just said, Brian, and that is that a real wages decelerated, albeit uh, very uh, slightly. So that's a good thing. I mean, if you see a, a gangbuster uh, non-farm payables report that incorporates um, a non-acceleration in, in wages, that's, I think, the silver lining in this entire situation with this labor market report today. So the Fed can look at it from either of both ways. But what I would tell you is that it's very difficult to imagine um, the Fed actually getting to its 2% target with a labor market that's producing um, double the amount of new entrants into um, said labor market every month. So, you know, I think the Fed has a tough uh, has a tough task ahead of it. I do think yeah. the terminal rate, Brian, ends at five and a half percent. So we get at least one more rate hike. Well, OK, at least one more. But, but uh, Catherine, I'll go back to you. The fact that stocks rose, that rever it was a 700 point reversal bottom mm -hmm. to top for the Dow today signifies to me, and again, say, no, Sullivan, you're completely wrong, as usual, that <laughs> the Federal Reserve may soon be out of play, that soon we may be able to stop talking about the Fed like we've been doing every day for about two and a half years, which seems like 25 years. <laughs> Isn't that the truth? <laughs> I think Dan is right uh, uh, in, in many of his points, but one of which being that the algos come into play, and there were the guys coming in to buy the dips, and I think that makes sense. Um, buying the dips at, when you have a, a knee-jerk reaction to a data point like this. But I think you're right in the sense that the Fed is going to be old news going into next year, especially if and when the market does price out the 50 basis points in cuts that currently are priced in. I can't imagine a scenario, Brian, where the Fed actually cuts right now. So I think the risk is that the Fed holds the entirety of next year. And if they do have to cut, Brian, I think it's a negative thing because we'll probably be in recession at that point. Yeah, Dan, I mean, the next time we start talking about the Fed, I think after this possible next cut in, I think it is November, people are already talking, like Catherine just did, about a potential cut. Is it possible the Federal Reserve could go years without cutting? Yeah, no. I'm no? on the other side of everything that you guys are talking about. For starters, we've all been doing this long enough to know that we're never going to stop talking about the Fed. That is admittedly by Let choice. Let me dream, Dan Greenhouse. Why do you got to ruin <laughs> yeah. my dreams on a Friday night? <laughs> It is but a dream, sir. 
Uh, we could be talking about the tech sector and how it was the best performer today, and nearly every name was up, certainly the largest ones, despite a big jump in, in yields. We could be talking about what's going on with the consumer staple companies and the food companies in the wake of news that Ozempic is, is perhaps having an effect on some Walmart shoppers. We could be talking about that. But we're talking about the Federal Reserve, and I don't think that's going to stop anytime soon. Um, but what I will say is I, I do agree with, with, with Catherine's point that, that the 2% inflation target is probably not going to be hit anytime soon. But that reinforces my point. The Fed could tell us, yeah, we're going to get to 2% next year. We're going to hike rates four more times because we believe, correctly or incorrectly, that we need to see the labor market we, uh, weaken. We have not seen it yet. Therefore, we're going to tighten more. They have not told us that, which tells me, again, that they're not willing to do what they think is necessary to get inflation target to, to, to get inflation to target sooner. So I, as an investor, am left with an economy that's growing, earnings that are growing, and a Fed that looks like it's not going to be doing uh, too many more rate hikes. And as long as the economy continues to operate okay with rates at admittedly a high level relative to the last 10 or 15 years, then again, to me, that is not a terrible backdrop for, for risk assets. All right. We'll leave it there on a positive note. I do know this. The next six to nine months for the consumer and data are going to be very interesting. We'll see student loan payments restarting. A lot of headwinds there. If we can get through it, Dan, that would be, I think, a very optimistic scenario. But Dan, we agree. there you go. We all agree on that. We'll hug it out virtually. We certainly do. Catherine and Dan, have a great weekend. We appreciate it. See you soon. Thank, Thank you, sir. All right, so before we go to a break, let's take a look at your weekly stud and dud inside the market. Market Access was your stud. It's a financial technology company, kind of wonky. Stocks up 12% of the week. Best weekly performance since March. The biggest decliner was Newell Brands. They make Sharpies and Elmer's Glue, and the stock got stuck this week, losing 18%. For investors. All right, we are just getting started. Up next, a major announcement from prosecutors of the trial of Sam Bankman Freed. We're going to go live to Lower Manhattan for the unfolding developments. Plus, how GM may have just become the new favorite in the negotiations with the UAW. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. It's time to take your career to the next level. With over 150 graduate degree programs, the Catholic University of America, located in Washington, D.C., provides world-class academics with a student experience that educates the whole person, mind, body, and spirit. Whether your professional calling is in engineering, nursing, social work, or any of our other exceptional degree programs, encounter the best of everything that Catholic University has to offer and discover the best in yourself. Learn more today at catholic.edu forward slash gradadmissions. All right, time now for tomorrow's news tonight. We wrapped the first week in the blockbuster trial of Sam Bankman-Fried. Today, we heard more from SBF's deputy FTX co-founder and CTO, a guy named Gary Wang. In his testimony, Wang said that Sam Bankman-Fried, quote, knew that FTX's investment arm called Alameda Research took money from FTX customer deposits without customers knowing that was happening. Wang also said that Bankman-Fried lied 
when he denied that was happening. And when asked about leadership and responsibility, Wang added that everything, quote, in the end, was Sam's decision. Wow. CBC Tech reporter Mackenzie Segalos was in the courtroom for us. Mackenzie, what was, what was Sam Bankman-Fried's demeanor like after hearing this, not only from a former friend or associate, but a former good friend? Well, you know, what, what, what's going on? <laughs> so, hey, Ryan, it's good to see you. Essentially, with... Sam today. He was pretty poised throughout. And then we saw him phased by the fact that Gary Wang, his ex-best friend, his ex-roommate, was in the courtroom testifying against him, speaking pretty explicitly about the fact that Sam had begun to perpetrate a fraud beginning in 2019. So it was the first time we saw Sam with his, you know, looking down into his hands, burying his head in his hands. So it was the first time he seemed phased uh, this week. All right, so that's this week. I think next week, and you and I talked earlier today, Caroline Ellison, his former associate, apparently his former girlfriend, will be on the stand, I think, on Tuesday. What kind of fireworks can we expect next week? Well, so what happens on Tuesday is that we begin with Gary Wong. The cross, the defense will begin, uh, will pick up where it left off with its cross-examination of his testimony. During that, uh, during that time, we'll probably see them continue to try to poke holes in this narrative <coughs> that it was nefarious that Alameda had this special access to FTX. You know, we're talking about features including uh, access to FTX's order book, the ability to apparently front-run trades, and this uh, $65.3 billion line of credit that Alameda had that was pretty unprecedented, according to Gary Wong. We're also, as you said, going to hear from Caroline Ellison, and this is a switch for the prosecution that initially had Zach Prince, the CEO of BlockFi, a lender that was burned by FTX. That was meant to be the next witness. They are switching up their strategy, going to Caroline Ellison next. Definitely going to be a packed courthouse on Tuesday. Look forward to you being there. Mackenzie Segalos, downtown. Thank you very much. Oh, you're very welcome. All right, next up. UAW President Sean Fain has spoken, and apparently General Motors gets the rose. That picture there was an attempt by Fain to compare the strike talks to the reality TV show The Bachelor, where only one can get picked. Anyway, the good news, on day 22 of the autoworker strike, Fain announced that there's been significant progress, his word, in talks with the big three, namely GM. After threatening a strike against GM's Arlington, Texas EV battery plant, Fain said that GM conceded those EV battery factors will become union plants with UAW contracts. But he said a tentative deal is still a ways away. Here he is in a union update earlier today. Here's the snapshot GM has been falling behind. Today, under the threat of a major financial hit, they leapfrog the pack in terms of a just transition. And here's the punchline. Our strike is working, but we're not there yet. By the way, if you're listening on the radio, Fain was wearing a T-shirt that said, Eat the Rich. All right, also today, Ford announcing another round of furloughs for 495 employees, obviously due to the impacts of the strike. We are now entering week four of the strike, and we're actually closing in on this being one of the longest UAW strikes of all time. Right now, we are the fifth longest strike in terms of length. That, according to the University of Michigan. Of course, there have been far larger strikes in terms of the number of workers striking. 
But there is still time for this strike to expand in both size and time. So where do negotiations go from here? And could a tentative deal be anywhere on the horizon? Joining us, Mike Whalen, CBC Auto Reporter. Mike, uh, what are you hearing on the ground? Are we getting closer? Brian, let me tell you, the EV battery announcement for the battery cell workers, that was by far the most surprising thing that has happened in these negotiations. And that is saying a Why? lot. People I typically talk with had no idea this was coming. And it was a Hail Mary by General Motors to avoid closing their very profitable SUV plant. And I mean, I have talked to a lot of people through these negotiations, and this was not even really on the board for GM as of, I mean, yesterday for a lot of people who are involved in this. Do we, I don't know how many other EV battery plants, particularly, by the way, in the South, this one, as we noted, in Texas are unionized. Maybe you do, but I don't want to put you on the spot. A relatively, I guess, not easy shift by GM, but it did not it did not deal with with money necessarily. How are we doing on the money front? That thirty percent that they're looking for. So this battery plant is in Lordstown, Ohio, and but what it does is actually kind of gives them the ability to organize the upcoming plants that GM has announced. There's three other ones that they have announced, and it gives them almost automatically into the national agreement which is what the union has been arguing for. And the automaker has said, we don't need to do this. It's against the law. We don't have to have this because they're joint venture plants. GM did not want the SUV plants to go down. And this is really going to cause a ripple effect across the industry for Ford and Stellantis. The craziest thing about this is that these plants aren't up and running. GM is the only unionized battery plant in the United States. And they've got three more coming. And this kind of just sets the pattern for all the upcoming battery plants. And it's very important to the Biden administration as well to produce the battery cells here in the U.S. So it's going to be very interesting to see how all this plays out. Yeah, I wonder how the millionaire politicians feel about the eat the, <laughs> eat the rich shirt. Uh, that aside, there, there was a UAW deal done and it involved Mack Trucks, the tractor trailer mm-hmm. company. Tell us about that deal and whether it's some kind of positive sign for what's happening here. So Mack Trucks actually reached a tentative agreement at midnight. I mean, it was last minute, and they are going to vote on that contract this weekend. The importance of this deal, though, to the UAW, I spoke with a lot of members at the Mack Truck facilities, and they are not happy. They believe that they should have gotten what the UAW automakers got. They did not get that. They don't have COLA. They've raised their 19% for many of them. Mm -hmm. And this vote's going to be kind of be a test to see how much the UAW members are willing to compromise compared to the elevated, inflated levels of demands that UAW President Sean Fain has put out there. Mike Whalen, ears to the ground, and we appreciate it, Mike. Thank you very much. Thanks, Brian. All right, still ahead here on Last Call, potential mega deal in the oil patch that has investors hoping there will be money. It's time to take your career to the next level. With over 150 graduate degree programs, the Catholic University of America, located in Washington, D.C., provides world-class academics with a student experience that educates the whole person, mind, body, and spirit. Whether your professional calling is in engineering, nursing, social work, or any of our other exceptional degree programs, encounter the best of everything that Catholic University has to offer and discover the best in yourself. Learn more today at catholic.edu forward slash gradadmissions. 
All right, don't look now, but we could be on the cusp of one of the biggest oil and gas deals of all time. The Wall Street Journal reporting that ExxonMobil is getting close to buying Pioneer Natural Resources. That sent PXD shares soaring today. A deal would be about worth about $60 billion and be Exxon's biggest since it bought Mobil back in 1999. Now, Pioneer may not be the household name that Exxon is, but it is a giant in the industry. In fact, Pioneer actually produces more oil and oil equivalents in the Permian Basin of Texas than Exxon. Pioneer does about 711,000 barrels of oil equivalent liquids per day. Exxon, about 620,000, that according to Reuters. And any deal would give Exxon a huge boost in the oil-rich part of West Texas. That's an area where it has been spending a lot of money to grow for the last couple of years. But over the years, many oil deals have not worked out or taken years to effectively pay investors back. So would this deal, if it happens be a good one for Exxon shareholders and what would it mean for the industry as a whole, especially when many ESG-focused investors are dumping fossil fuel companies. All right, let's welcome in two very smart voices with us tonight is Osmar Abib. He is the former head of energy investment banking and chairman of Global Energy at Credit Suisse. And Dan Pickering, the chief investment officer of Pickering Energy Partners. Osmar, you made your living doing deals like this. Heck, you, you, may, you may restart. Who knows? Uh, do you think this deal does eventually happen? Because they've been dancing around the Maypole since earlier this year. Well, Brian, thank you for having us on. Uh, probably this deal is hopefully a little more exciting to talk about Fed moves. But uh, uh, look, I think this deal could certainly happen. I think they have been talking for quite some time. It's really an issue of fair value. Uh, and that's a function of, of price and consideration. Consideration meaning mix of equity and cash and, and maybe other things. Um, but it, 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 it is a good time for a deal. Uh, the markets are receptive to it, but energy is much more of interest, uh, although there are a number of different uh, perspectives on energy. But yeah. it could certainly happen. You know, and, and Osmar, back to you as a banker. You know, the Journal does great reporting, and they usually nail it. What I found most interesting about the story was that there was no real talk of share price. We didn't have a lot of valuation or money data in there. I'm assuming that if there is some sticking point, of course, it usually comes down to the money. What would be, a, in your mind, if you were as a banker, we're going to do this deal, what would be a fair valuation? Well, um, you know, obviously I'm not involved in the deal, so I can't speak specifically to that. But, you know, the board of pioneers is going to be the one making the decision, and they will be comparing what offers proposed to other alternatives, which would be the value of the company on the standalone basis, which is quite attractive, and other alternatives that could come up. I think to what you're looking for in terms of an answer is it, it really does depend to some degree on consideration, among other things. So in other words, it's all cash. Odds are they'd expect a much higher premium, much higher uh, uh, dollar per share. It's a mix, and then, then there'd be other uh, perspectives to, to be thought about. Uh, there, you know, people do look at precedent deals, but each deal is specific. And uh, um, I think uh, there is a range to, to for a deal to be done. Dan, how would we view any potential deal? There's two, there's two very different ways to view this, and I could make the argument for both. One of them would be Exxon sees demand for oil and other liquids being strong, even though I know we're going to phase them out, but apparently we're going to need them for a few more years. Exxon could see the demand for oil and liquids being strong for decades, so they're willing to buy it from Pioneer, or they see a slow rolling slow down and thus want to get bigger 
to achieve more economies of scale? Which one do you think it could be? Brian, I think it could be both. I think that getting bigger, economies of scale, uh, both Pioneer and Exxon are, all, are, are both already big in the Permian. Getting bigger will save some costs. There's probably half a billion to a billion dollars at least of cost savings to be had with this transaction. I think that the other reality is Exxon's going to be an energy producing company you know, for the next 50 or 100 years. And Permian Basin, low cost uh, barrels of oil, low carbon barrels of oil relative to the rest of the world. And so you look at that and say, this deal makes sense for them. It's a core basin. It's a low cost basin. And it keeps them in the game from an inventory perspective for a longer period of time. So uh, it, this is a pretty straightforward, nice, solid blocking and tackling deal for Exxon. And, and Pioneer gets a great partner if they do this deal, which I think they will. Yeah, and Scott Sheffield, who we talked to many times, a 71-year-old founder and chairman of, of, of the, you know, he wants to retire. He retired already. He came back. He wants to retire again. You know, Dan, let's say the deal does get done. Okay, there's another name that we never talk about that every time I ask people what's the best run oil company, they usually name Pioneer, Chevron, but they also name EOG. Okay, EOG just kind of quietly sits there and does its EOG thing. You got Diamondback as well. If, if Pioneer gets taken out, does EOG or others have to start merging to scale things up? I don't know how they would compete with that behemoth. If you look at history, Brian, what happens is when big companies start to combine, other big companies start to buy, combine as well. And so my guess is that if this transaction happens, we'll fast forward two years and six, eight, 10 uh, really sizable oil companies will have combined, whether it's Chevron and Conoco buying Diamondback, Devon, EOG, whether it's EOG and Devon and others combining to get bigger. Um, I think that, that this could be a tipping point because yeah. commodity prices are good. Uh, values are good. And if you don't make a move and somebody else does, are you left holding the bag, wishing you'd done something? Uh, so I think it gets more active. Osmar, it's a point that, that you've made to me in the past about other things, but I think it's relevant here. The shareholder base of these oil and gas companies is changing, right? You've got endowments, universities, pension funds. They will not own fossil fuel. They've been divesting. Hedge funds, by the way, have been stepping up so that hedge funds, by the way, a much more, let's call it uh, active slash annoying type of shareholder, right? They're going to call the CEO probably a lot more than a passive investor pension fund. How does a changing shareholder base for oil and gas impact the potential for this deal or more deals like it? Well, uh, there are certainly a variety of different shareholders involved, and this is a very attractive company to echo what Dan said. So, it's got a very strong suite of traditional institutional shareholders. Uh, the thing that's interesting is with the this news that's coming out, the shareholder base is changing as we speak. And so there'll probably be more people motivated to push for a deal. But the other thing probably worth mentioning, uh, Brian, is that um, you know, the shareholders of Pioneer today are invested in a very high quality independent exploration production company that generates a substantial amount of cash flow and is a pure play and is, and is generating a lot of distributions back to shareholders. Uh, Exxon currency or equity, if that's what's offered, is a different investment opportunity. Also a very attractive global integrated energy company, but different. And so investors, if there's a deal to be had here, will have to assess what they're getting versus what they have. So it's not just a function 
of what premium and mix it's offered, but is it the type of currency that they want to own going forward? But these yeah. are two very, very attractive uh, players in their own way. Well, if we, if we get a deal, it, you know, generally these things pop on like a Sunday night. You know that better than anybody. Osmar, Abib, Dan Pickering as well. Great discussion. Could be a massive deal, guys. Thank you. Have a good weekend. Yeah. Thank you, Brian. All right. You're welcome. All right. Still ahead. We're going to turn to tech and a bodacious new call from star analyst Dan Ives. He'll be here to lay it out. Plus, the White House throwing a Hail Mary to entice you to buy an electric car. The big new subsidy shift ahead. All right, welcome back. Usually, we do a weekly insider buying segment on Fridays, but since there's a quiet period around earnings for a couple of weeks every quarter, you get a bonus Friday RBI. Lucky you. And tonight, maybe some good news for anyone interested in an electric car, because today the government made some rule changes. And they said that beginning in January, EV buyers will get the $7,500 rebate on a brand new EV or $4,000 off a used one up front, right at the dealership. That is instead of having to wait to put it on your taxes. Now, car dealers benefit, too. They'll get that money back because they, they pay you and then they get paid back by the government within 72 hours of selling the car. The move, the latest push to try to stimulate some lackluster demand for non-Tesla EVs. A George Washington University survey of car buyers found the majority would prefer this method, you know, getting the big taxpayer subsidy up front. Who wouldn't? But remember, not everyone or every car is eligible for that credit. If you have questions, we have answers. Married couples making over 300000 per year, probably the main EV buyers right now, won't get the credit. Same for heads of households making over two twenty-five, or solo filers over 150000 a year. And there are also car price limits as well. For vans, SUVs, and pickup trucks, anything over 80000 no credit for you. And for all other cars, it is 55000 and under. Right now, there are only eight EVs eligible for the $7,500 credit, with four more being added next year. Thousands in upfront money right at the dealer, courtesy of your fellow taxpayer to buy a car. What could possibly go wrong? Random, but interesting. All right, speaking of cars, Tesla cutting prices again, this time on its Model 3 and Model Ys. Each down about 3%, but that cover, you know, some of the sales tax. This comes after Tesla reported a decline in car deliveries for the third quarter. Could this be the sign of weakening EV demand from Tesla or a super smart move to try to grab market share and destroy the competition? Let's take it to your next guest with us. That is Wedbush Managing Director Dan Ives. Welcome back, Dan. What do you think? It's just a crush the competition. It's suffocate competition. And I think this poker move, despite obviously investors being frustrated on the price cuts, it's been the smart move because they're going after volume in this price war. And Tesla, from a scale and scope perspective, really right now, it continues to be Tesla's world and everyone else is paying rent when it comes to scale and capacity. Do the price cuts matter? Like, is 3% going to make some? I know, Marge, now it's 3% off. Let's go get a Model 3. Does Look, in itself, the price cuts can stimulate demand because right, if, what they're looking at is trying to make sure that it's a volume game. So the vast majority of price cuts, we believe, are in the rearview mirror. But if you look, Brian, at this year, this has been the right smart move, not just in the U.S., but what's happening in China in terms of this EV arms race that's going on. All right, let's change gears. Well, they don't have gears, but you get the pun. All right, it's been a rough week for Rivian. You know this. And its investors. 
Shares down 22%, most of that yesterday after it announced a big convertible debt sale. Now, Dan, you've been bullish on Rivian. In fact, over the summer, you talked about it on this, on, on this show. Listen. When you look at where the stock could go, I think it's just the early days of what I view as a massive growth story playing out. Still bullish on Rivian? Look, still bullish in terms of the demand opportunity. And as they ultimately from continue to scale this out, no doubt the convertible. I mean, that was a gut punch to investors. Why did they do it? Look, the, the, it makes people nervous. Why do you got to raise money? And I think the problem with Rivian has really been the actual execution of the business model. It's really been one headache after another. And I think this is just another where the credibility of the story is being tested here. And I think it's going to be a pivotal coming months and, you know, especially going 2024 for Rivian to really show that they could scale with no surprises coming out of left field. Well, losing $33,000 a truck or an SUV, what are you going to make it up on volume? That's a big number to fix. Look, it's, it's an uphill battle for them coming out of the gate. And I do think even when we look back the last few months as someone that's been bullish on it, you know, this is really there have been a lot of disappointments in terms of some of the decisions in the management team. And I think Wall Street's kind of spoken this week. Mm-hmm. And I think that's why the stock's been down accordingly. All right. Let's end on a positive note. It's Friday. Sure. Right. Let's, let's end on a high note. You put out a big note, sort of a macro tech note, very bullish. I think you're calling for like a 10 or 12 or 15 percent jump heading into year end. Why? I think we're going to see it starting with three key earnings. I think we are going to have an eye-opener type of parabolic move up Mm. in tech going into year-end. I think tech's oversold here. If I look at AI in terms of this Even with the big year it's had? Look, even in the big year, if I go into 2024, I think Street's underestimating numbers across software, across chips. I think we're going into a Goldilocks situation, despite the macro and obviously the 10-year in a soft landing type backdrop. I believe tech rips higher from here, which is why we believe 12, 15 percent type mm-hmm. of upside move going into year end. There you go. Dan Ives of Tesla, Rivian and Tech writ large. Good luck to your Nittany Lions this weekend, by the we way. We are. Thanks. Hokies are 24-point underdogs. Uh, they could surprise them uh, against yeah. Florida State. Only the surprise would be if we cover. Dan Ives, thank you. Thank you. All right, coming up. Has the storm finally passed for downtrodden Disney investors? And streamflation, more price hikes, when does it end? Needham's Laura Martin's weekly media check ahead. All right, welcome back. Time for your last call watch list, where a few stocks are grabbing our attention tonight. First up, a major milestone for the SIBO. That is the company that owns the Chicago Board Options Exchange, CBOE. It's at an all-time high today. SIBO investors loving it this year, up nearly 30%. Not to be outdone is Chicago neighbor CME, the old Chicago Mercantile Exchange. That was actually the second best stock of the week, and it's closing in on all-time highs. SIBO, best stock of the week, CME, second. What is, what's going on with these Chicago-based exchanges? Maybe we need a field trip to find out. All right, next up. An update on a story that we reported last night. Consumer staples, the biggest losers in the S&P 500 today. Mondelez, Costco, Walmart all stumbling. Comes the wake of a Walmart warning about a dip in food buying from consumers taking weight loss drugs like Ozempic, which made me question, how does Walmart know what drugs we're taking? Anywho, one of the biggest victims also is McDonald's. Listen to this. Mickey D's on its longest weekly losing streak in four years. 
Now down six straight weeks. Investors certainly not loving that. All right, turning now to another stock that had a volatile week, had a volatile couple of years. Stock near its pandemic lows. That is Disney. Remember, it hit the pandemic lows when all the parks were shut and the stock is nearly back to where it was then. Had a decent day today, but overall, been a brutal year for Disney investors. And recently, CEO Bob Iger also hinting the company would look to or could sell its TV assets like ABC, ESPN, and National Geographic. Disney, though, is investing, particularly in parks and cruises. And Disney recently announcing it is offering discounted tickets for children. So is now the time to buy the Disney dip? Let's talk about that and some other media issues with senior research analyst that Needham and Company, Laura Martin, for our, our now regular, I hope, sort of weekly media focus with Martin. we got to come up with a catchy name, Laura. Uh, do you think the pain is over for Disney investors? I think we need to work on Laura's, need to work on Laura's mic. Laura, we can see your mouth. There she is. Laura, my my dear, we we lost your audio for about the first 20 seconds. So we're just going to, I'm going to, I'm going to rewind. Is the pain over for Disney investors? Nope. We have a hold rating here. And the problem is that they're about to spend $60 billion in the physical world, whereas investors could put money to work in these generative AI virtual sort of scalable globally ideas. So returns on capital for Disney going forward will be lower because they're going to allocate a lot more capital to the physical world in their 12 parks that they own. So we think it's still and they haven't stemmed streaming losses. They've got to get these streaming losses under control. What we're hearing is that the fallout with the CFO that made her leave, because now we have an interim CFO, is because she wanted to cut costs and they wouldn't let him cut costs more. And we still don't have a dividend here. So still too early to buy Disney. We need some things to get better before we enter, I think. All right. Well, you mentioned stemming losses in streaming. There's the best way to do that, I guess, is to raise prices and hope people pay. And this week, Netflix kind of did exactly that, said they're moving toward another price increase. We obviously have a streaming service, Peacock, as well. I got to tell you, though, Laura, it used to be like once a year you got an annual price hike. I don't know if it's just me or what, but, you know, the Sullivan family, we tend to use most, if not all of them, at least sometimes of the year. And it feels like every other week I'm getting a price hike. I mean, how much more can consumers take? So I think that's the best question, because what's happening is Wall Street is screaming for these companies to hit profitability. Their costs are going up because they just settled with the writers at a big increase in costs. They're now in a strike with SAG, which is the Actors Guild. That's going to be a cost increase. So these streamers are having a lot of trouble cutting costs. So their alternative is to raise prices for consumers. In fact, Netflix announced that it's raising price on consumers, and it blamed it on the writer's strike resolution, which means, Brian, that if the SAG, which is the actors, also get a price hike, you're going to see another price hike from Netflix under the same intellectual logic. Is there a, break, the, is there a breaking point here? I mean, at one point, does the, I, the old cable bundle, right, I said the, the old man who yells at a cloud, at some point, the cable bundle is going to start to look attractive again. Well, I think that's exactly the right point to think about because the value proposition of cable was too expensive and too many channels I wasn't watching. Streaming, the average house takes five of these. So if the average price just went up $2 each, which it has in the last three months, that's an extra 10 bucks on top of the 50 or 60. So the gap between linear and streaming 
is shrinking. And the next important point is when Charter and Disney fought, basically Charter forced Disney to put all its streaming assets into the Charter bundle. So the next thing that's going to happen is for this for this higher price, you're going to have all the streaming assets with your linear TV bundle, which I think reverses the disconnects from linear because streaming isn't going to be that much cheaper to do a la carte anymore. That, that, and that charter deal that was made, sort of, you know, it's all wonky TV stuff, right? But if you can have the cable, because you have internet anyway, so you got the cable bundle and then some of these streamers built in, well, would that be just like terrible news for you know, Roku? It'd be bad news for Netflix because they don't have a linear TV. Um, they don't have a linear TV revenue stream. For Roku, who does streaming, Let's remember, linear TV is targeted at people over the average household income of 60000 And Roku and Walmart, those guys are targeted at the average household income under 60000 So I think there's room for both of those because they're targeting sort of different. There's 144 million homes and round numbers. There's actually more below the poverty line of 60000 But But, you know, I would say there's room for both, but it won't be a bigger TAM. It will take total addressable market out of streaming and put it back in linear TV. It's just the weekly inc price increase is just unbelievable. Laura Martin, you're unbelievable. Great stuff. We'll see you next Friday. Thank you very much. See you next Friday. Bye, right. Brian. Yeah, thank you. All right, we're going to wrap it up after the break, folks. I'm going to give you my three best bets for the week, and Lisa Kearney of FanDuel is going to tell me why I'm completely wrong. That's next. All right, time now for America's most favorite TV segment of all time. Can Brian beat the books? All right, like three of you care. But every week, I'm going to give you my top three picks ahead of NFL Sunday. Again, this is for fun, not for profit, just to see if I can win and humiliate myself on national TV. Betting is risky. So here we go. From my three official picks on air, now the last two Fridays have been off, so I posted my three on-air picks to Twitter. Out of 12 games, I'm six, five, and one. One push. It was a tie. Not awful, not great either. Last year, I was like 67% to the upside. This year, been a lot harder. All right, so let's do three more. And we are thrilled to welcome in Lisa Kearney, host extraordinaire on FanDuel. She's going to tell me if she likes the pick, hates the pick, and why. Lisa, great to have you on last. I bet you never thought one day I'm going to be doing a gambling segment on CNBC. The way I love it. Thanks for having me. I, I'm thrilled to be here. And let's let's help America do a little better than you're doing right now, huh? Yeah, I know. I know. It's a slight <laughs> winning record, but but it, not good. I'm not proud of it. All right, here we go. So three picks. We First pick is this. Cardinal, I think the first one is Cardinals. Yeah, Bengals at the Arizona Cardinals. Cardinals are favored. It's plus three at home. I'm going with the Cardinals. Joe Burrow can barely walk. He's still banged up. The Cardinals have been a lot scrappier than people think. Josh Dobbs, the quarterback there, doing pretty well. The Cardinals have played some tough competition, and they've hung in. Like it? Hate it. Okay, I got to tell you. Sully, I don't like this pick. I absolutely love this oh, pick. The wow. Cardinals have been playing teams close all year long, and you just mentioned it. The quarterback, Josh Dobbs, and this Cardinals offense has absolutely been shocking the NFL right now. They're seventh in EPA in drives over the last four weeks. Um, then this Bengals defense comes in here. Look for James Conner to have an absolute monster game. This Bengals defense is giving up more than five yards per rush. And listen, my take on this game really 
is probably more about the state of the Bengals and how close they are to rock bottom right now. You talked about it. Joe Burrow, clearly not 100%. He's limited in what he can do. Pushing this offense forward has become a challenge. They are stagnant. They're punting on more than 52% of their drives. Sully, that's the highest rate in the league. And then they roll into week five, and they'll likely be without T. Higgins, who you saw was questionable. A little random but interesting punting stat there. We've got to move it on. Lisa Kearney, okay. Uh, Cowboys but, but I got to tell you, give me the home dog. Give me that home there dog. There we go. Cowboys at 49ers, plus three and a half. I'm going with the Cowboys. Talk to us about the importance of what they call the hook, that .5. If it was point, the three and a half to me is why I'm doing it. If it was three, I wouldn't. Yeah, that's tough. I, I'm going to go ahead and fade you here. It's not enough for me, and I'm, I'm using my head over my heart on this one because I absolutely love Dan Quinn. I love what he's doing with this defense. They're unquestionably elite with Micah Parsons and that crew. But Brock Purdy and this offense is going to come into Levi's Stadium on Sunday night, and they're going to put up points, and they're going to put up a lot of points. Brock Purdy in the last yeah. nine games, dating back to last season, they put up more than 30 points in eight of those well, games. Play- You've seen it. They haven't played anybody. This 49, I'm sorry, this 49ers schedule's been terrible, except for the aforementioned Dolph. I they haven't played a Cowboys team. Lisa, final pick is this. Patriots. Okay, let's do it. Patriots now at home plus one against the Saints. It was minus one. I liked it. I like it more now. Derek Carr, Saints quarterback, really, he's also bang. Patriots aren't good, but I think the Saints aren't either. I like it. Don't love it. It's a really a pick'em game, right? This is one that I like to typically stay away from. It's a get-right game for the Patriots. They're going to come in there. Mac Jones needs to get a little bit of confidence. Maybe it comes against the Saints defense. I gave up 350 yards last week to the Bucs. I'm with you. Let's go ahead and like it, and let's uh, get the Patriots to to cover on that tiny little number. Bounce-back game for Belichick. Lisa Kearney, I didn't just like the segment. I loved it. Lisa, thank you. And she agreed with me on two of the one. We're going to post it out. Lisa Kearney, real pleasure. We'll see you again. Thank you very much, folks. Have a spectacular weekend. We'll see you Monday. It's time to take your career to the next level. With over 150 graduate degree programs, the Catholic University of America, located in Washington, D.C., provides world-class academics with a student experience that educates the whole person, mind, body, and spirit. Whether your professional calling is in engineering, nursing, social work, or any of our other exceptional degree programs, encounter the best of everything that Catholic University has to offer and discover the best in yourself. Learn more today at catholic.edu forward slash gradadmissions.